Amen, and good morning to you all. It's good to see everybody filled with awestruck wonder just at the mention of his name. And that's something. I almost don't even want to come interrupt that, but I'm going to. But on Wednesday, I won't. So if you come for worship night on Wednesday, we'll just, I'll pray, but then I'll sit down and worship with you all. And it's wonderful because we just sing, and before you know it, it's done. And you're like, what? That was it? It was just like that. It's just, and we'll have some prayer and everything. So it'll be just a great time. So please join us on Wednesday night for worship night. By way of introduction, Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first verse. I'll set the stage for what we're going to look at uh, today. Verse 21 in chapter 4 of Galatians, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Have you never read the law? Do you understand the implications of going back under the law? People who think that they're going to get to heaven by doing a little bit more good than bad, do they know the law? Are they familiar with the law? The religious leaders, the Judaizers who taught faith plus something else, whether it was some kind of work or circumcision, do they hear the law? Do you realize that if you put yourself back under the law, you have to keep the whole law? Do you also know, by the way, that it's too late anyway because you've already blown it. You're a sinner. And so you can't keep the law. And even if you think that you could somehow or have somehow kept the whole law, the Bible says that you've been born in sin. You've inherited a sin nature, not to mention that as we've seen again and again and again in the book of Galatians, God has never saved anybody by the law. Have you read that? Are you familiar with that? Do you understand the implications is what he's saying there? What we saw, one of the big themes of this book is that long before the law, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So before the law, before circumcision, Abraham was saved by grace through faith. So anyone who tries to tell you that God would somehow save any other way, clearly they don't know the law. I find that's true as it relates to the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament, that a lot of people say that they've read the Bible or claim to have read the Bible that have never really read the Bible at all, which is why there is this misconception sometimes that being a Christian means that we have to keep a whole bunch of rules. I know I thought that growing up. It's one of the reasons I had almost this disdain for the other youth in the church I grew up in for the fact that they attended youth group because I had that attitude. I didn't go because I thought, well, why would I do that? It's just a bunch of rule keeping and blah, blah, blah. There's no fun in any of that. And so I had that kind of an attitude. I, I've met a lot of people, maybe you have as well, who won't come to Christ or say they don't want anything to do with God because of that very reason. They want to have fun. They're having too much fun, and they're afraid that if they come to God, if they come to Christ, they won't be able to have fun. As if God's sole job in this universe is to sap a human life of its joy. Nothing could be further from the truth. It would be as if the gospel was this total downer, you know? Like it was presented, you know God hates you and has a miserable plan for your life. That's the good news, bro. You want to pray to receive Christ? I mean, no one would want that, but that is sometimes what people think because of the idea, the misconception. Well, it's sad enough that someone will wait 
to come to God or even not come to God because they don't want to keep a bunch of rules. But what might be in some ways even more sad is when someone who has already been exposed to the good news falls away from God because somebody else has their ear, so to speak, and has led them to believe that in order to be pleasing to God, they've got to keep a bunch of rules. And that's exactly what had happened or was at least on the verge of happening there in Galatia when the Apostle Paul is notified as such there. Now you can only imagine what it would be like to be the Apostle Paul and to somehow, he's not with them. He can't get to them for whatever reason and he receives word that all of this is going on. I can only imagine that, say I were to go out into the mission field for a couple years. Now we know we're talking about something that's hypothetical here. But let's say I were to go out into the mission field for a couple of years, I were to go down to uh, Peru where our Peruvian missionaries were and for some reason I couldn't come back here and I received word that this was happening here. And you say, well it would never happen among us. Well I don't think Paul thought any church he planted and stuck around for a while to water that this would be going on there as well. Can you imagine just the helpless feeling that I would have in Peru hearing that somebody had your ear and that this kind of teaching was going on and people were being duped and they were falling for it and they were led to believe that grace wasn't enough and that somehow some other ritual, some other regulation, some kind of rules had to be implemented into a Christian life in order for that life to be pleasing unto God. And so Paul, he writes this letter. He appeals to their personal experience with God, how that came about, when they were born again. How did that begin? He identified Old Testament precedents, which trumps the laws we've seen and talked about over and over again. And then he's also drawn up some powerful illustrations. We'll see another one again this morning, which is quite poignant. All of this to demonstrate that God has always saved by grace, by a simple faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and exclusively by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. Someone once said that Christ supplemented is Christ supplanted. And anyone, and I mean anyone, that comes along and would try to have any of you believe that it is anything else beyond a simple faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is very clear. Romans 16 says, now I urge you brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. You're not to hang out with them. You have to use good discretion in terms of whether you would ever wanna debate them because it says you probably ought to avoid them. They're not good for us. Let me give you another passage. 2 John 1 says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, do not receive him into your house. So, you know, it's one thing when a cultist shows up and they're wearing slacks and a white shirt and a blue tie and they come up on a bicycle. You know who's coming to your door right away. Maybe you are prepared. Maybe God would put it on your heart to minister to them. Maybe they're no threat to you. You've been walking with the Lord for a while. You've been studied up in how to defend your faith. And there is a time and a place to, obviously, defend our faith, even with a skilled cultist. 
And so we're to do that. But I think also there's a balance here. And you've got to use discernment. You've got to be led by God because it says, don't even receive them into your house. We have to be careful about influence. We really do. You know, the Bible says, that for those that think they stand, take heed lest you fall, arrogance is not helpful. Overconfidence doesn't work in the kingdom of God. We must be reliant on him. And so, and we're going to see this in the illustration we're going to look at here about the concern of influence. We're going to see it in the text following the illustration as well. Really the theme for this morning, sort of a caution for us along these lines. Now I'll go through this illustration here at the end of chapter four pretty quickly. Okay, I just want to kind of make a couple uh, important points, but it's another illustration that Paul uses again from the Old Testament, which has just been so enriching going through this book to see these examples. He says, verse 22, for is written that Abraham had two sons. So we're back talking about Abraham again, which is good because it establishes precedence before circumcision in the law, right? So anytime we read about Abraham, we got the principle of first mention here. So unless you have something that can trump Abraham, you have a hard time arguing with Paul's logic here. He says, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That is Ishmael, okay? And he of the free woman through promise, and that is Isaac. He says, which things, verse 24, are symbolic. Now, this is symbolic, but this really happened. This is a real story, historical story in the history. It's chronicled in history books, not just in the Bible, that this happened, okay? So this is real life, but Paul says also, this uh, goes forward to give us some symbolism that we can draw upon in trying to establish some understanding here. Remember that when God came to Abraham and said that he was gonna make of him a great nation, Abraham was 75 years old, Sarah wasn't far behind, she was probably about 65 years old, and Sarah had been barren all of her life. So it's gonna take a miracle, right? It's gonna take an absolute miracle. Well, years go by after the promise is made and she does not get pregnant. Well, Sarah and Abraham get tired of waiting and so Sarah, in an effort to help out God, she engineers this plan to try to make the promise of God come true. Because I mean, we can't allow God to look bad through this. We're in the book of Genesis. We can't already have him failing. So they come up with this plan to try and aid God. And so she decides, well, I'm going to give to Abraham, my servant, Hagar, and we're going to produce a child that way. We're going to have a child. We'll fulfill God's promise because Abraham will have a child through Hagar, her servant. And that's exactly what happened. And born was Ishmael. Now, listen, when God makes a promise, almost inevitably, there is some gap between when he makes the promise and then when that promise is fulfilled in someone's life. You and I sometimes, we get into trouble when we get a little bit impatient. When we try to take things into our own hands, when we try to come up with our own strategy or game plan in order to make things happen, trying to help out God. Because what happens is the promise of God still comes. Isaac was still born. But now what you have on your hands, both literally and figuratively, is an Ishmael, so to speak. And by the way, the world is still paying that price to this day. Because the religion of Islam, they believe that Ishmael, because in that culture at that time, 
Ishmael was the firstborn. And so typically, the firstborn would have been entitled to be the heir of the estate. And they also believe, the Islamic religion, Muslims believe, that Muhammad was a descendant, a direct descendant of Ishmael. Ishmael is believed by history to be the father of the Arab people. And so they believe then that the great nation that God was going to bring forth through Abraham would come forth in the person of Ishmael, not in Isaac. And the Arab-Israeli conflict that continues to rage in our world today dates all the way back to Genesis chapter 16. All of the problems in the Middle East still stem from the father of the faith's lack of faith. Isn't that something? And it is a warning to you and to me about trying to do things in our own flesh, trying to get out ahead of God, trying to think for God, and think that somehow we can come up with a plan better than his. Now, Ishmael was Abraham's son, as Paul said there. But he was a son symbolic of Abraham's lack of faith, symbolic of Abraham and Sarah trying to do something in the flesh, in their own strength. Because if you remember, in Genesis chapter 22, which we looked at last Easter, when God calls Abraham to go up with Isaac, he refers to Isaac as his son, his only son, right? Even though Ishmael would have still been alive at that point in time, that's how God refers to him. And the reason why is because God does not feel compelled to recognize the works of our flesh. And he did not feel compelled to recognize the works of Abraham's flesh in going out of his way and in his strength to produce Ishmael. So here is the symbolism that you need to understand as we look at this illustration. Ishmael becomes symbolic of a work done in the flesh and symbolic of the law, whereas Isaac was the son of promise, and so he is indicative of a work done in the spirit or of grace. Okay, that makes sense so far? Okay, verse 24, into verse 24. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. That is what is going on in Jerusalem to that day that Paul is writing and is in bondage with her children. So you have one covenant. One covenant is handed down at Mount Sinai. That's where Moses received the law. And it corresponds, the Bible says here, to Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar was a bondwoman. She was not free. It's a picture of the law, which does not bring freedom, but brings bondage instead. And he says, this is what is going on in Jerusalem today. Because even though they said, hey, we're children of Abraham. Paul does not argue that point that they were, but they were not children of Sarah. They were children of Hagar because they were not living by faith. They were living according to works. Then he says, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The second covenant, the other covenant that we're talking about here, which corresponds to Sarah and Isaac, it's all based on grace. The new covenant, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem someday, corresponds to a grace and a promise that God made to Abraham before the law. For it is written, verse 27, Rejoice, O barren you who do not bear. 
Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now that's from Isaiah, and that could be referring to the Gentile people who were desolate in Old Testament times, but now have bore more children in the faith in Sarah and Isaac as the New Testament went along and that promise has been fulfilled. Now we brethren, and here is the point, this is the point that he's getting at that we'll take forward with us into chapter five. He says, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. That's what we are, we're the children of promise. We're descendants of Isaac in the same way that Isaac was a miracle child, right? Well past the point of being able to give birth to children, Abraham and Sarah, and yet they did because it was a miracle, just like you and I. We are miracle children. We are born again of the Spirit of God. No less, more a miracle than natural childbirth for God to take a sinner and regenerate them by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we are born again by a miracle, and by the way, the act of regeneration, of being born again of the Spirit of God, that is not an act of the flesh, like Hagar and Ishmael is, Sarah and Isaac corresponds to an act of grace, a promise that God gave, a gift that only he could have done. Okay, so here are the two points, ready? Verse 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So Ishmael and his descendants would persecute Isaac and his descendants all the way up until today. This is why we still have these problems that we're talking about here. And this is exactly why we have to be very careful about influence. The influence of the law, as Hagar and Ishmael are a picture of the law, and Sarah and Isaac are a picture of grace. Anyone who attempts to come to God on the basis of the law or self-righteousness Oftentimes, down throughout history, we've seen it again and again, they will persecute those that come to God on the basis of grace. And we should expect that, and that's why we have to be careful of that kind of influence. So that's number one. Number two there, in verse 30, it says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Cast that influence out. The son of the bondwoman and her son shall not have that kind of influence over the free woman and her son. In Genesis chapter 21, after Isaac was born, there was a point there where we don't know that Ishmael directly ever persecuted Isaac, at least it's not recorded in uh, the book of Genesis for us, but we know in Genesis 21 that he was mocking Isaac. And Hagar and Sarah all along had been dwelling together. They'd been living under one roof. Well, there comes a point in Genesis 21 where that's not gonna work anymore. Once Isaac is born, that is not gonna work any longer. We can argue all day long about whose fault it is, but that's not the point. The point is, is that since Sarah and Isaac are symbolic of grace, right? And Hagar and Ishmael are symbolic of law, the illustration is very clear that grace and the law cannot dwell together. That's the picture that he's trying to draw for us here in the text. It's interesting to note that Sarah and Hagar could dwell together before the son of promise was born. Fascinating, isn't it? Which means in some mysterious way, grace and the law could dwell together before Christ had come, but once 
Christ comes, then they got to go. Then the law has got to go. The influence of the law over a believer in Christ, over a children of promise, can't be there anymore. It's got to go. We've got to remove that influence from our lives. And so in the same way that the people in Galatia were being influenced by law, by legalism, by the Judaizers here, and he says, hey, cast out that bondwoman. That's what he's saying. You've got to cast that out. You've got to remove that influence. Don't think that you're strong enough to fall back under legalism. You've got to cast that out. And so that's the idea here. He says, end of verse 31, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So now we switch to chapter 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And we've been given that liberty in Jesus Christ. And so we're not to put ourselves back under any, kind of, any sort of law, even the law of Moses, much less some sort of system of religion that would only seek to put us in bondage. Jesus Christ shed his blood to remove the drudgery of do's and don'ts. He died and took our place so he would free us up from performance-oriented religion. And so that's why Paul says, don't be entangled again with the yoke. The yoke, when you think of yoke, think of choke, because that's what it does. It literally can choke the life and the love out of a believer in Christ. Notice he doesn't say there, and whatever you do, try as best as you can not to be entangled in a yoke of bondage. Or whatever you do, do the best you can. Just try to avoid that. Just be careful. Of it. No, he says it's a commandment. You don't even get a choice. And here's why, verse 2, Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Whoa. Now, when he says, if you become circumcised, he means if you become circumcised as a means of attaining righteousness before God. If you do that, Christ will profit you nothing. In other words, if you say you believe in Jesus, but then you add something to Jesus, then you really don't believe in Jesus. And that's the idea. Christ will profit you nothing. Were you good at algebra growing up? Here's a formula. Christ plus X equals x minus Christ. Whatever you add to it means now you have to take Christ away. You add something to Christ, it's not Christ anymore. And that's the idea here. Anything we add to a simple faith in Jesus Christ, what little faith we have is now of no effect. Plus verse three, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, again for the purpose of being made right with God. Timothy was one who Paul had circumcised but not so that he would be made right with God, okay? That he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, you can't just go back and pick and choose what things you wanna do under the law. Right now, I could be driving, doing 50 down Capitola Road or something like that, and I see the lights in my rear view mirror, I get pulled over by a police officer, and I give them the attitude to be like, well, you know, I've never robbed a bank before. I've never shot anybody, I've never dealt drugs, why don't you fight real crime? And what the police officer will say to me is, I don't care about all of the crime you haven't done, that's irrelevant, you broke the law, so license and registration. And I'll be getting a ticket for breaking that law, it doesn't matter if I hadn't broken all these other laws. 
You go back under the law, you have to go back under the whole law. When we were over at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz back in the day, we used to meet in a Seventh-day Adventist building. So we were pretty familiar with some of their theology. And they are real hung up on the whole Sabbath thing. They, they believe that you have to worship on Saturday. In fact, many sects of Seventh-day Adventism believe that if you don't worship on Saturday, you've taken the mark of the beast. The problem with that is the, the philosophy there is completely bankrupt. They think they're observing the Sabbath by worshiping on Saturday, but nothing could be further from the truth because you have to keep the whole law. You have to keep the whole Sabbath. According to Sabbath law, you can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. So if you started your car this morning, or if they started their car yesterday, you kindle a fire within your engine, you just broke the Sabbath, even though you're worshiping on what you think is the Sabbath. If you flip on a light switch, that's according to the rabbis today, you flip on a light switch in your home, you are kindling a fire, you have now broken the Sabbath. They don't keep the entire Sabbath. If they sew, if they bake, if they tie or untie, if they write two letters or erase two letters, they've broken the Sabbath. You do any of those things, you have broken Sabbath law. You cannot pick and choose which things you wanna follow and which things you don't. You can't just go under the Sabbath or just under the 10 commandments. You gotta keep all 613 laws. And nobody does that. And that's what Paul is warning them on. And then if you try to do that, verse four, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Heavy words. And I think he means them to be heavy words for sure. Now, I am always amazed, though, how some people seem to glom on to certain problematic small portions of verses out of context as a means of tumbling down into despair. I've fallen from grace. You ever heard someone say, I've fallen from grace? Most likely anyone who says they've fallen from grace have not fallen from grace. Here's why. First of all, this is most likely not talking about salvation, but experiential. That you are not at this moment in time experiencing the grace of God like you would. And the reason why is because when somebody sins, as people continue to sin even after they're born again, they don't forfeit their salvation or the blessings of God. What would then be the purpose of grace? When we sin, we actually fall into grace. That's the idea. This is never talking about a sin issue at all. What Paul is saying is if, and this could be a hypothetical if, if instead of relying on grace, to maintain my relationship with God, to be made right with God, I instead revert back to the law or some kind of tradition or some kind of ritual or legalism. That is, if I seek to be righteous along those lines, I am by definition, if grace is unmerited and unearned, I am not experiencing the grace of God. I won't allow God to in my life because I'm appealing to him. I am working alongside with God on the basis of my works. I'm not accepting God's grace in my life. Now let me make one quick comment because we're not gonna have many opportunities to talk about this here in this particular kind of context. But we saw three very strong statements that the Apostle Paul made there for someone that would try to go back under the law or under circumcision to be made right with God. And he said, Christ will profit you nothing. He said, you've become estranged from Christ. And he said, you have fallen from grace. I bring this up because every once in a while, say like in men's study on a Wednesday night, We'll go into some text and it'll 
cause some discussion to come up and someone will have some pet doctrine and they'll want to talk about how a believer can lose their salvation or something along those lines. And so I figured, let's address this while we're here because this is the kind of text that someone will see and go, could I have fallen from grace? Just so you know, and when we get to the book of Hebrews, we'll break this down exhaustively. Never, ever, first of all, I believe in the eternal security of the believer, but it doesn't make any difference what I believe. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is never, ever, one time in the scriptures does it even remotely sound like one could lose or leave or whatever their salvation on the basis of their works or of sin. What is the only way someone doesn't get to heaven? There's only one way, and that is if they die in rejection of Jesus Christ's sacrifice that he made on the cross for our sins. Is that right? That's the only way. So you have nothing to worry about. You are eternally secure unless you are plotting to get to heaven another way. Or if at any point in your life you decide to plot to get to heaven another way, it's a moot point whether you were or you weren't saved. The point is just rest in grace of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. People will argue this thing upside down, different ways. It doesn't matter if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. Okay, so be eternally secure if you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is inside of you testifying of that, you never have to engage in a debate with someone along these lines. You could just turn them off. You could just say, I believe in Lord. He's living inside of me. I'm eternally secure because I'm not plotting any other way to try to get to heaven. That's all we need to talk about. For we, verse five, through the Spirit, eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Doesn't make any difference whether you get circumcised or you don't get circumcised, unless you're trying to get circumcised so that you can be made right with God. He's saying, other than that, it doesn't avail anything at all. But here's what matters. He says, faith working through love. Now, I love how he balances this whole thing out now. And we're going to see more of this next week. But we've been going through this book, and the message is grace, 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 grace. And I think sometimes you'll get a few people that go, well, that's a little bit of a dangerous kind of road there, Paul. You're talking about grace and you give people that much license of grace and freedom in Christ, they're going to go out and make a wreck of their life. But he balances it out here towards the end of the book as he begins to talk about here this faith working through love. We are saved by grace through faith. You cannot contribute to that. You cannot add to that at all. But here he calls that faith, he calls that faith, faith working through love. Now, works don't save us. They can't save us. But the kind of faith that saves us is the kind of faith that is working. It's the kind of faith that works through love. That's the kind of faith that saves a person. James said, faith without works is dead. It's not an alive kind of faith. So the kind of faith, it's not that work saves you, but the kind of faith that does is one that produces works in our lives. Now, we are not trying to spin in a little bit of works at the end of this book to smooth it all out. Because if you look at the motive there, the motive for works is works through love. Faith working through love. That's the motivation for good works, is that you would do it through love. When I see our folks, and I get pictures of work day, and people come on down here and they get dirty and they pull weeds and they clean stoves and bathrooms and all those kinds of things. When I see 
our women come for days on end before the Christmas tea and they decorate and they set things up, knowing that there will be unbelievers here for the Christmas tea. When I see people in our church body put shoe boxes together to send off to kids who are way less fortunate than we are here in the United States of America. When I see our Peruvian missionaries here, and I see someone go up to them and, and stuff a $100 bill down their shirt pocket like a dad would do for his son. I know that is nobody trying to attain some measure of righteousness before God through works. That is faith working through love. And I'm never gonna tell you anything you do well ever again, but you do that very well. You all do that very well. And it's a blessing to stand back and watch it happen, to get pictures of people at work day. That's the last time I ever give you a compliment, but it's true. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing that to see faith working through love in this church body. And by the way, if you're born again, faith will work through love, inevitably. So if you're hearing this and you're going, boy, I don't know that my faith is always evident through my works, oftentimes. The answer to that problem is not to make a list and to roll up your sleeves and get to work because now that's law, that's legalism. The answer is I need more faith and more love. How do I do that? I need to spend more time with God. And if you spend more time in his word, you'll increase in faith, you'll fall more in love with him, and you won't be able to help yourself but to serve him and to work for him as a response to his grace and his goodness, not because you're trying to earn any sort of righteousness on your own. Verse seven, you ran well. You know, you started off running well. You know, Paul used a lot of sports illustrations. You know, he talked about shadow boxing and exercise and running the race to win and competing for prizes and that kind of thing. Sometimes people say that I use a lot of sports metaphors. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, it's biblical, obviously. You ran well. <laughs> Who hindered you from obeying the truth? When I left you, you were doing great. What happened? And he answers his own question when he says, Who hindered you? In other words, this wasn't something that you all got to on your own. I know that this is not some kind of philosophy that you come to that you would draw from the word of God to get that. Someone got to you, and we'll come back to this in a little bit. He said this persuasion, verse eight, does not come from him who calls you. Certainly didn't come from the Lord Jesus. You didn't get these ideas from Jesus. Nothing in Jesus' philosophy or in his teaching or in his sacrifice were you led to believe you had to go back under the law or be circumcised in order to think that you would be right with God on account of him. By the way, this is a great, this might be one of those verses you circle in your Bible if you are inclined to be someone to talk to the cultist that comes to your door and you do feel like God has called you to do that kind of thing. Remember this verse right here. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. In other words, one of the questions that you can ask a cultist, if you love them and you want to try to reach them and you feel like God would have you reach out to them, ask them, where did you get these ideas? because this certainly does not come from Jesus Christ. Never ever would you read your Bible and get the understanding that you're trying to share with me right now. This persuasion does not come from Christ at all. Put away your magazines 
for a second and show me where in your Bible you've come to these ideas. And the answer is they won't be able to find those things in their Bible. It's one of the great things about being a Christian and making the sole source of our theology be God's word completely. We don't have like special Calvary material here. We never will because the material is God's word. You wanna fend off influence, you wanna stay away from a trip or the persuasion of legalism, just read your Bible. Just keep reading your Bible, just stick to your Bible and you'll be just fine. All right, well maybe you didn't get the sports analogies, that's not your thing. So how about cooking, verse nine? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Whoever he is. That persuasion, that influence that is coming in here and corrupting this scene is leavening the whole lump. And we've talked about this in various parts of the text before, but leaven is like yeast that uh, is added to the dough in order to make it rise. It is essentially an agent of corruption. You add it to the dough and, and as it rises, it will all by itself uh, infiltrate, infiltrate the entirety of the dough. Now, this is the glory of God if we're talking about fresh sourdough or Krispy Kreme donuts. But, <laughs> but as we're talking about the Bible, leaven is always a type or a picture of the influence of evil. And so it's important to note that as it will infiltrate the whole lump, leaven will, legalism can and will infiltrate God's people, and a church body. And by the way, it's never content just to go part of the way uh, within a local fellowship or in a human life. It wants the whole thing. Once it's introduced, just like yeast, it will not be satisfied until it infects every area of your life. And that's why Paul is so outspoken about the concern and the danger of certain influences, especially the influence of legalism. And in this context, legalism that would keep someone from understanding the truth of the gospel, saying that you need to do these other things in order to be right with God. It starts out small. It always does with legalism. Little rules that you keep, personal convictions that you begin to vocalize, and then the pride in the heart when you start to think that your rules are actually the right kinds of rules for another Christian's life to the point where you begin to judge others or correct others on the basis of this legalistic trip that you've allowed to sort of grow inside of you. Gotta be careful about just a little bit of leaven. If we were to get on a plane tonight and we were to fly to Hawaii and the navigation instruments would be like one degree off, by the time you got to Honolulu, you'd be a two to 300 miles off course, though I, could be one degree off in that calculation, but somewhere along those lines. You just need a little bit to be way off track. And by the way, just a little bit of influence, a little bit of leaven in a human life, and we can be way off course uh, for the destination that God has for us. And so Paul wraps up here, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Apparently, the Judaizers were saying that Paul was uh, in line with them. He was saying what they were saying. He, he teaches the same thing too. And Paul counters by saying, well, if I teach 
legalism. If I teach circumcision, then why is it that I'm still being persecuted by these guys? They wouldn't be persecuting me if I'm preaching circumcision and law and rule keeping. And by the way, then he says, then the offense of the cross has ceased, if that's the case. Why would I be offending people with the cross? The cross does offend people. The, the cross offends people, as you know, because it suggests that your works don't play a role in your salvation. In fact, your works are the problem. Your works are what sent Christ to the cross in the first place. And that offends people. And Paul says, why are people offended then if I'm not still preaching the gospel? And then he says, verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, he's speaking about circumcision. So what you think that means is what it means that Paul's saying. He's saying they shouldn't just stop with circumcision, but they should literally move on to castration. Paul, this is a church. Come on. But what he's saying is, I'm not 100% sure what he's saying. <laughs> but what I believe he's saying is, is that this kind of, I wish that they would not be able to be fruitful in reproducing, that they would not be able to contribute to this, that they would be completely cut off from any influence that they would have whatsoever. And believe me, I, as a pastor, I gave you that example ahead of time, but I can only imagine being in a foreign country and hearing stories about this group right here. I, I would do anything I could to get back on a plane or whatever. None of the guys, none of the pastors, none of the leaders here would allow it to happen. Wouldn't matter whether I'm here. I'm just giving a hypothetical that the helplessness of hearing that this kind of thing was, would go on, I could relate with how Paul is feeling here and why he would be so demonstrative and saying, cut these guys off, cast out that influence, rid yourself of legalism and the influence that it would have on the people every time. I cannot tell you how many times that, that I've been doing this now, walking with the Lord, and those of you who've been walking with the Lord for some time, will be able to tell that it's absolutely the case. That I've seen people who, when he says, you ran well, that started off really well, that started off good, but then somewhere along the line, some false teacher, some influence got in, infiltrated and corrupted their thinking as it relates to proper and sound doctrine. And now all of a sudden, you look at some of them and you look at some of those people, heart just breaks for them because they're, they're, they've bought into, some, I don't know what it is, but they bought into something that keeps them away from the fellowship, from serving God, from doing the things that they've been called to do. And it conjures up inside of someone righteous anger. I don't blame Paul at all. I don't blame the Holy Spirit for speaking through Paul and saying exactly what he said. And of verse 10 there, he said, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. That's harsh also. He's gonna get judged for this and I'm glad that's the way, you know what, if a shepherd is protecting their sheep and a wolf comes in, I don't have any uh, sore feelings for the wolf. I don't care. That wolf's going down because that's what the shepherd's supposed to do. And that's the way that a shepherd feels and how he feels here. Because when he says there, who hindered you? Who hindered you? Because this persuasion does not come from you. The word hindered there, it means literally as he was talking about the metaphor of running in a race, hindered means to be cut off. Like if someone were running in the Olympics or something like that, and they were to get cut in front of. We see it sometimes, right? 
like in speed skating or whatever the case may be. You can clip heels or something along those lines. They cut you off and you fall to the ground and the race is over. You're in the Olympics and you fall to the ground. That's it, the race is over. And you would think then as much as we watch the Olympics and you could be brokenhearted for someone who's competing for the gold medal when they fall to the ground in a speed skating event, how much more so is that true when someone comes into a human life, into a Christian's life and trips them up with false doctrine? How much more so true is that? Why does that not give us an even greater righteous anger and sadness for someone that would be tripped up or cut in by anyone who would try to infiltrate them with that kind of influence at all? That would try to interrupt our growth in the Lord, our passion for God. And by the way, this happens all the time. Don't think this is some hypothetical here. That as we close it, it's like, what are you talking about? This never happened. This happens all the time. Now, a lot of those people, if the root is strong, if they really are believers, they'll be back. The backslider is always back. But the fact is, is that it breaks your heart. Why go through that period of dryness in your life? Why go through that period of time where you're out chasing after this doctrine and that doctrine or doing nothing, not hanging out with the Lord, living a defeated life because someone would have that to be the case in your life because the enemy is interested in, in trying to trip us up along those lines. So the importance of sound doctrine, of sticking to grace. It's like, whoa, every week we're talking about grace in the book of Galatians. There's a reason for that. We keep repeating this same thing because it's something we've got to stick with us when we move on to other books. We've got to remember what he's trying to teach us here. It is absolutely paramount to everything that you are as a Christian that you understand grace. Let's all stand together and the worship team can come up. Next week, we will finish up chapter five and chapter five, the end of chapter five is really awesome, powerful. And again, this is sort of the balancing act of the book of Galatians, okay? Talking about the fruit of the spirit. So if you ever miss church, you don't wanna miss next week, okay? This is a really important, wonderful, powerful text for us to all as a church body come together, really soak this in and study it together. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a ton of fun. Be here. Bring someone with you next week. It'll be a great study. Okay, let's close in worship and I'll pray for us. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for, Lord, this church body. We're protective of each other, God. And we, we will, Lord. We, we seek to identify and avoid any kind of influence, Lord, that would seek to disrupt or break apart this family that we have that is rooted in your word, your son, his sacrifice, the grace you've bestowed to us. Lord, we, we thank you for what you teach us. I don't care how often you repeat it, God, we need to hear it. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I never get tired of grace. We worship you because of your grace. We can worship you. We can pray because of your grace. We're going to heaven because of your grace. And we thank you and praise you for that this morning, God. You're good to us, Lord, so very good to us. We just love you, Lord. We just get a, a kick out of everything you write, even your sense of humor there. We just still our hearts now, God, and as we close and worship you, and just thank you for paving the way for each one of us. Great and awesome you are, in Jesus' name.